0: are you having a good summer? How many of you are here? You're visiting Edinburgh and you're on holiday. Just a few. Welcome. Welcome. Nice. Many of you have been on holiday. Was it good? Oh, so not very many. So how many of you are going on holiday? Sorry about the rest of you. That's brilliant though. That's most of us, isn't it? I, as well as going on holiday, I'm having a brilliant summer. I have like the best job one of the best jobs in the world, because I lead the team that look after all the communities, the missional communities that we have all over the city and the region that belong to Central. You've probably heard about them at the beginning. And I look after that team. And so in June, I just basically waft from one food extravaganza to the next. And it gets called work. And everyone says, oh, thank you so much for coming. And I say, no problem. <laughs> so I've been, I can see Kirsty and Craig are here. I was at their house a couple of weeks ago. And they've got this brilliant community with all these people from like, all over the world. It was absolutely excellent. Was sort of Africans and Eastern Europeans and Australians. I think there was the odd Americans snuck in there. And despite that, it was still truly Scottish because we did have a barbecue. We did it outside. And there was a moment where the heavens opened. It totally poured. And we all grabbed like, you know, tubs of coal and headed for the house. It was just great, great to see what community does. A couple of weeks before, completely different set of people. I was out in a farm with a couple that some of you know, called Johnny and Sheena. Oh, there, you're here too. And we were basically celebrating a brilliant community that has been home and groundedness and rootedness for dozens, maybe hundreds of teenagers who were um, at that point in high school where you don't know quite what life's about. They were struggling and they'd come out to this project in the farm. And I don't know, I don't feel a a magical power of hens, but each one of these teenagers in working with the hens in the farm um, had really just had their life quite changed. And it was brilliant. When I was with the people there, what was great is not only have the teenagers' lives been changed, but person after person was saying to me, we've loved being part of this community. It has changed us. It's been a privilege. Isn't that great? So, I mean, there are others. I'll tell you, I just, I had a week where I had about five meals out. My husband who's, well, I won't say too much, but let's just say cooking's a challenge. And so he's a little bit like, are you going out again? I'm like, well, I might bring leftovers. It's always cake at Central. So it has. It's been absolutely great. So obviously your summer hasn't been as good as mine, but I hope it has been good. And One of the things we're doing when we're here this summer is we are looking through the book of Acts. And we're just exploring some of the different places and spaces that the people in the first churches 2,000 years ago almost where they found themselves how they follow Jesus we look at them in the process of them figuring out what does it look like to be church where we live and that's our question and it was their question and what I love about the book of Acts is it's like a maths exam where the person did what the maths teacher told them to do and they showed their working so Acts Max, Max isn't just the highlights and this went well and that went well. Acts shows you the working of how some of these things happened. Some of the, the disputes, some of the things that went well, some of the reactions to the gospel that were not so good. And we're going to see some of that today. And one of the main things that we're going to see today is that the church is not just called to gather together. We are called together. that's what we're doing right now. We gather, we love to worship, we love to pray, we love to learn about Jesus. But the church is to be a launch pad. It's to be a sending place. And Acts, at this moment in time, I think would speak really a lot to us in Central because we are in a season, in the middle maybe, maybe at the end, but I think most people think we're in the middle of a season where we are increasingly becoming a place that sends so not only do a lot of people gather here on a Sunday and then go out during the week we have Sundays where you can turn up if you're a guest at Central you'd be surprised sometimes you turn up and you think wow nobody's here because they're all out there doing community feeding me it's really important we planted churches we've sent a team to Stenhouse Baptist Church to to help them We have a Farsi-speaking church. I personally don't speak Farsi, but it might be one of my goals next year. We'll see. They they cook, so that's all good. They cook, wow. A church who sends. What we're going to see when we look at the book of Acts is this is what the church was in the book of Acts. Yes, they gathered, but they were continually launching people out. They were continually sending. And we're also going to see that that is costly, to the people who go and to the church who sends. But it is also amazing, and it is what Jesus calls us to do. If I told you, and this is a true story, if I told you that I was going to the airport on Tuesday, which I am, what would you ask me? What kind of plane are you going on? What kind of color is your plane going to be? Oh, what are you going to eat when you get there? Because like you always go and then you eat, don't you? I don't know why, it's part of the thing what would you ask me? I'm going to the airport. You would almost all ask me, where are you going? I'm actually going to Ghana, which is quite exciting and a lot more exciting than Edinburgh and Heathrow Airport. We often ask each other, oh, you're a Christian as well. What church do you go to? Good question. But it's not the only question that Jesus is asking us. The question that Jesus asks us, the question that the book of Acts asks us are, where are you going? Oh, so you belong to Central, so where are you going? Where are you sent to in your city? And who are you sent with? In the book of Acts, almost nobody goes solo. They're all in groups, they're with. Who are you with? And who are you sent to? So we'll look at some of that. And I don't feel I can preach in Acts without starting in Acts chapter one, verse eight, where Jesus, the resurrected Christ, is with his followers, his disciples, those men who had learned, women who had learned from him. And he's just about to leave it to them. And he's handing over the baton and he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes and they receive power. How do I know? Because they start to do all the things that Jesus did. They start to heal the sick. They start to tell people about Jesus tremendously boldly. A bunch of people who apparently were just in a room, knees knocking, frightened to go out days previously, filled with the Holy Spirit, get out there and start to tell people about Jesus. They have a tremendous response because people do want to know about Jesus. Not everybody, that's fine. But there are always people on the earth at every moment in history, many of them who want to know about Jesus. They see angels, they see miracles, they cast out demons, they do the things that Jesus did in the gospel. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. I believe it is one of the key and core, if not the key message of Acts, that the power of God and the witness have to go together. You will receive power, you will be witnesses. I think trying to do one without the other is not going to be so great. Initially, they're focused, where Jesus tells them you'll be focused, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. I've got a little map for you. Don't say I'm not good to you. So over in the left country, you would identify as modern day Israel, but that's what it looked like back in the book of Acts. So you'll see the city of Jerusalem, you can read it's there, and then it's in the region of Judea, and then above is Samaria. Now, we've got to remember that when Jesus speaks to these people, the bicycle hadn't been invented, never mind a car or an airplane. So we're speaking to people who would, by and large, live and die in a very small geographical area. The Jews weren't really that keen on the Samaritans, so they didn't even travel to Samaria very much, I'd imagine. And they would understand the first part of what Jesus said, you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, where we are now, chaps, in Judea, out into the whole region, even Samaria. Samaria. And then he says, unto the ends of the earth. And initially, I don't even know what they would have thought the ends of the earth could have meant. They didn't have a map. There was no map of the world. They hadn't explored it. They didn't know much of what was beyond a certain point. And then they begin to find out. And initially, it's persecution that sends out the church. The church in Jerusalem does great. It has thousands and thousands of people coming to know Jesus, they're just sorting out life, and then it's decided this is not a good thing. And basically, they've got policemen knocking on the door, coming into their Bible studies, grabbing them, throwing them into prison. And then one of their prominent leaders is stoned for his faith. And so they begin to run. But they don't run and hide They run and continue to be witnesses. And now they're going beyond Jerusalem and beyond Judea. And God begins to explain to these people who who were all Jews by religion. That was the, the religion they were born into. They'd converted to Christ. In fact, I don't think they would have called it a conversion. For them, Jesus was the Messiah they'd been promised. But to them, God still was primarily the God of the Jews. And to go beyond that to people who are non-Jewish would have felt strange to them. So initially, as they're persecuted, they go and they f- they're with these people and they start to tell them about Jesus. Because that's who they are. And a whole bunch of people with no knowledge of God start to become Christians. And up in Syria, you see that town Antioch. There's a whole group of people there become Christians. And I imagine someone sends like an SOS to Jerusalem and says, Help! Help! And they send Barnabas. And um, if you've read the book of Acts, you'll know Barnabas is the guy. He is the guy you send. He is reliably good. The Bible says that he's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. So they send him in. And Barnabas is there and he's thinking, this is great. And then Barnabas realizes this is not a one-man job. So he nips up round the corner to Tarsus because he knows there's a man there called Paul. And he knows that Paul is a, is a bit of a wild card, but he loves to share with people Jesus. And Paul has actually been parked in Tarsus by the Jerusalem church because he is a bit of a liability. I won't liken him to anybody because I'm bound to get it wrong, but he is a bit of a liability. And uh, Barnabas takes a chance on him. And do you know what I love about the book of Acts? Because you often see God just using any old buddy not even a perfect person. And you see them sometimes mess it up. And I love the fact that Barnabas takes a chance on Paul. Barnabas knows what Paul's like. He knows he's a bit of a liability. He always says too much. He's a bit rude. He's a bit confrontational. And Barnabas takes another chance on him. And I just wonder what the Bible would look like if Barnabas hadn't taken another chance on Saul. Saul and Paul, he has two names in two languages. At least they rhyme. Do you know what I'm saying? It's background. We're getting there. We're getting to Acts 13. Don't worry. So Barnabas and Saul, Paul, are in Antioch for a year establishing this church. And that's where we're at when we get to Acts 13. So you ready for a bit of reading? Don't worry. I'll do the reading. You can just enjoy this story. So I'm not obviously not going to read the whole chapter because it's long, but I am going to read a decent chunk of it. And let's just enjoy the story. And start to get into it. You'll be able to, hopefully, you'll be able to see the map as well, which is quite helpful if you're someone like me and you have no knowledge of that part of the world. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Barjesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to go blind for a time and not be able to see the light of the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over him. And he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Then they move on and they go into another synagogue. They share Jesus with the people and they say, come back next Sunday. Verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Barnabas, sorry, Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles, the non-Jews, heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them. And went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Wow, there's a lot happening there, isn't there? Acts 13, there's a shift. People don't go out because they're persecuted, they don't go out in response to an SOS. A group of leaders pray and fast. You can't fast for five minutes, so this wasn't a quick thing. They took their time and they discerned what God wanted them to do. And what God is asking them to do is really costly. He's asking them to take Paul and Barnabas, the two main leaders of this one-year-old church, and send them out to share the gospel throughout the region. And they do it. And that t- turns things for the book of Acts. Thereafter we see the church continually be- this continual sending out place. The first place they come to, they're Jewish by background, they go into a synagogue. Makes sense, doesn't it? They probably get a very lukewarm reaction. How do I know? They didn't stay. By and large, Paul tended to stay where he was welcome and move on when he wasn't. Top tip. So, goes across to Pathos. Now, he moves from the known and the comfortable, from the culture and the people he knew, to something completely unknown. We don't know how it happens, but he has this divine appointment where he gets an audience with the Roman governor of the whole island, Sergius Paulus. Roman empire, everywhere they had their empire, they had people in charge. Sergius Paulus is the guy. He's the man in charge. Only one snag, Sergius Paulus, main advisor, a chap called Elemus, is a sorcerer. That means he practices witchcraft, no doubt uses it to advise Sergius Paulus. So Sergius Paulus is most likely there for someone open and interested in spiritual things. Paul and Barnabas start to tell him about Jesus. Sergius Paulus is interested. Elymas is not into this at all. And what follows just looks on face value really very rude and un-British, doesn't it? I'm just going to ask this question. And if you feel tempted to put up your hand, come and see me later have you ever met someone for the first time, looked them in the eye and said, you are a child of the devil? Good. And on, its, on the face value, it just is shocking. It's just rude. It's just beyond rude. It's like, what is he doing? This is going to finish everything. But you've got to read what comes before. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul looks Elymas in the eye. And what we then see is not a personality clash or one person being rude to another person. What we see is a clash of kingdoms. Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. Elymas is filled with a very different kind of spirit. The holy meets the unholy. And and Sergius Paulus watches it. And this is not some equal battle between two opposing spiritual forces. The power of God is much stronger than any other power. And Paul basically says to Elemas, you're going to go blind. This is what's going to happen. It happens. How does he know? Because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon me. You Then you'll be witnesses. That's how the witnesses of God do the stuff that Jesus sent them to do. Filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, we don't see witchcraft up front and center very much in our country. Um, it tends to be hidden. It does happen, but it's hidden and it's in the background. But um, I've been to Ghana several times. And when you go to Ghana, witchcraft is practiced up front and center. And in the region I go to, there'll be a Christian village. And then the next village will be what they call a, a juju village. Juju is just their brand of witchcraft. 2009, um, the churches that I go to, they'd been working with this one village, um, just going and continually sharing the gospel and sharing the gospel, seeing some of the women get saved, but they really hadn't seen much happen. And my team went out with them for the day for one of these visits. And you're not going to believe this. I'd love to say I was there. I was sick. I've only ever been sick once in like the dozen times I have visited Africa, but I was sick on this day. My team go in. And something happened in that day. And in a village of just a few hundred people, 93 men, women, and children became Christians in one day. 93. So the following year, into this village, in the middle of all this witchcraft, it's still kind of going on. So the following year, they say, well, we, we'd like you to come, Faye. I'm like, Great. And we'd like you to preach the gospel, and we'd like you to speak to the chief and the elders. Now, the chief in an African village is a very powerful person. There is a political system, and the sort of chief thing seems to sit alongside it. But really, the chiefs are king in their village. We also had the local political guy, the assemblyman, and all the the elders of the village. And uh, I'm thinking, right, okay, it's going to be good. And you know how they tell you that in Africa, they're much more responsive than we are? That's not always true, and uh, I don't know if it's because the Ghanaians were first a German and then a British colony, but we've definitely rubbed off on them, so they're all sitting there, and I'm thinking, like, these are like, I don't know, practicing saucers. I'm thinking, what's going to happen? And I preach the gospel, and they sit, and there is just nothing, and I'm thinking, okay, God, over to you. And as I'm speaking, I can, f- I can feel, it's not like you, you're all listening, you're engaged, you're thinking, oh, that's interesting. I can feel this opposition in this crowd. I can, also, I can feel different things going on, but I can feel massive opposition, all these things going on in my head, and I'm just sticking to the plan and thinking, oh, God. And then at the end, one of my, the Ghanaian pastors gets up and he says, okay, well, who would like to become a Christian? There's no hype, nothing. They just start, and then we just wait. And I'm thinking, oh dear, I'm going to bomb in Africa. I can just and you're like, last year, 93 people became Christians. And then one by one, a young woman, then another woman, and then another man, and then finally, because they're all waiting for him, the chief comes forward. We chiefy, he is we. He's like my height, just without heels. And it, he doesn't just come forward, but he comes forward and he gets down on his knees. And he bows his head in the dirt. And then many of the elders followed the assemblymen, lots of the villagers. To this day, that was 2010, to this day, that chief is a practicing Christian, and everything is changing in that village. They took down the big idol in the middle of the village, the big idol where they went and prayed to. They've taken that down, and bit by bit by bit, the church is working with them, and the village is being transformed. Because the witchcraft had not only brought them spiritual darkness, it also brought them a lot of physical darkness. Masses of really kind of social issues and dirty water. And then they get a pump and it breaks and no one fixes it. And the government get them materials to buy a school and then everybody steals them and nobody built it. And just like really, really difficult problems. But the root of them was this witchcraft. And once that's removed, this village has started to flourish. There you go. Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we can go outside our comfort zone, even into something as difficult, perhaps, as this. Paul then goes across to a synagogue, totally mixed reaction. Some people are like, Yeah, this is great. This is exactly what we've been waiting for. They're part of the people. Just like the people all over the world right now who are waiting for someone like us to show them who Jesus is. And then there are people who stand up and say, we're against you. And some of them are leaders and they actually get kicked out of the town. And are they discouraged? Are they sad? No. The Bible says they they just go on their way. Filled with joy. And here's the key thing, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And I I could tell you loads more stories. I mean, I could talk for the Olympics. If you know me, you know that. But I also know this is summer and I I don't want to, you know, overstay my welcome. But I do know this, that it does cost to be a church who sends. If you've been part of Central for any period of time, you will have felt that cost. That people that you used to see every Sunday, you don't see anymore. That people you were in community with, they're now in another community. People you loved have gone to Oxgangs, they've gone to Stenhouse, they're in the Farsi-speaking church, they're not here like they used to be here. We feel the cost. And yes, they come back, but it's not like it used to be. And I know I've spent much of my life as a Christian, Scott and I, discipling people who we then sent out. And they're in different countries and they're down the road and they're, they're doing all the stuff that we taught them to do and they're being Jesus in their communities, but I miss them. It costs it costs to be people who are sent. We might get it wrong. It might be difficult. People might come against us. If we stayed here and all we did was this, and if we just did Bible studies together with Christians and pray with Christians and gather with Christians, it would be nice. It would be safe. We would not be persecuted. We would not have people oppose us. We wouldn't have to be as brave. But then we would keep to ourselves the greatest thing in the world and the thing that we were given and told to share and give away. So there's no real choice. But this morning I wonder how this is hitting you. Some of you are thinking, yes, I'm sent out. I'm loving what I'm doing. I know who I'm called to. I know who I'm called with. I just want to be filled with more of the Holy Spirit. And we would love to pray for you. Some of you are thinking, I don't know who I'm sent to. I don't know this. I don't know that. I feel slightly confused. Love to pray for you. Jesus is sending every one of us somewhere or just some group of people. That's the way he does it. And maybe this is just not how you thought that church should be. Maybe this confronts in you something that you've held on to. Some belief about church that it's good when we're just together. That that out stuff is scary. That it's just for the evangelists. And I'm not saying for a second we should all be like Paul. Personally, I don't want to be as rude as Paul. I like to be nice. That's what I like to be. But we're all called to be witnesses. That's not the same as all being called to be primarily evangelists. And when we are afraid, what do we have? We have the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's stand, and I'm going to pray for us all, and then I'm sure there'll be more worship, and then there'll be an opportunity for you to receive prayer for more of the Holy Spirit, for boldness, for whatever you feel that you would like to be prayed for. And many of you don't need somebody to pray for you, you just want to worship and connect with God and tell him how you're feeling, because he already knows anyway. So Lord, we stand before you this morning as people who love you. We say, God, we're afraid, but send us anyway. As people who don't know you, we say, God, we're not sure what she's talking about. But if you're real, show yourself. And as people who know the power of your Holy Spirit and the joy of being witnesses, we say, God, fill us afresh this morning with your Holy Spirit. So that as we go about life, we show people what you're like, we tell people, they read our lives, and they hear what we say, and we see lives transformed around us, just like Barnabas, and just like Paul. Amen.